You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Hello and welcome to another Lozano Smith podcast. I'm your host, Sloan Simmons, co-litigation practice group leader and student attorney out of the Sacramento office. I am incredibly lucky today to be joined by two of my colleagues out of our Walnut Creek office, longtime partner, Manuel Martinez, a jack of all trades. You might say fab one day, charter schools the next, then governance, maybe a little negotiations in the mix. And if he feels like it, he'll do some student work for you. So Manuel, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Sloan. Happy to be here. Also from our Walnut Creek office, senior counsel, Elise Nichols. And Elise, before before we get into our substantive topic, I just want to note, I always take a quick peek at everybody's bios before we jump on together. But yours talks about fab. It talks about litigation, some construction advice. But the reality is, is that you are now a very, very busy student attorney as well, not to mention a range of other subjects, including one that is at the heart of what we're talking about the, today, the Public Records Act request. But at least get that bio updated, would you? You know what, Sloan? I'll get right on that. As soon as we're off this mic, talking to, talking to client services, get that fixed. So the California Public Records Act, there isn't one of our public agency attorneys who is not dealing with it. Some of them dealing with it on a daily and or weekly, um, always, always on a monthly or, or annual basis. And uh, the, the request can be large and small, sensitive or benign. But what we're going to talk about is the, the CPRA today. And why don't, Manuel, I start with you. What's the latest? Anything new on our, our good old PRA? Well, I'm glad that you asked, Sloan, because the answer is yes. Believe it or not, a lot has changed in the world of the California Public Records Act. And it starts with the reorganization that was enacted about a year or so ago, but took effect just this past January. So what does that mean? What it means is, is that all of the statutes that contain the California Public Records Act, all the rights, all the obligations, all the exemptions, have picked up and changed address. They've all moved to a new section of the government code. And while that sounds kind of in the weeds, it affects everybody. It affects everybody because we now have to essentially relearn where the address is for all of these statutes. And when we're processing our requests, it's going to affect how we process requests. It's going to affect how we respond to folks. It's going to affect how we litigate these things. Um, so it's kind of a big deal. I, I, I think that that's one of the big issues. And then we've had some new cases that have come down the way, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. All right. Well, that's all well and good, Emmanuel. As someone who gets very used to repetition um, whether that's what I eat for breakfast or the phone number of, uh, of my family member or the, the PRA section codes. Now we have this full new set, all moved, like you said, different address to relearn. Why did they do this? You know, Sloan, I think, I mean, I'm just kind of guessing here as to why they're doing this. I, I, I suspect that it has to be um, coming from the from the perspective of the law enforcement issues that have been coming down in the last several years, frankly, I think that there's been a, a tremendous amount of energy 
and an effort to make the Public Records Act applicable to police use of force, law enforcement use of force. And what you ended up seeing was some of those provisions kind of taking a section of themselves. I mean, that's kind of my belief as to what's one of the reasons why. Um, I think another reason why is just that it's been a long time. The, the Public Records Act was uh, started in the 1960s, right, as a Transparency Act, and has been uh, tweaked over the years, and I think that it was just due for a refresh. Um, it definitely has made things more challenging because it went from being in a, in a section of the government code that was workable and kind of a little bit tighter to now it has just whole sections that stand alone on their own. So, so while it may not feel user friendly to, to an old dog like myself, who's been living with the public records act, uh, for the past, you know, 10 plus years, maybe, maybe this is just, you know, a, a, an easier way for, for folks who are new to the CPRA to see it, um, laid out in, in more specificity by section. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I note that it seems like there's a bunch of the section blank 0 0.02 dot, dot, dot. That's not, I mean, this is just the attorney and me complaining, you know, give me just number, I, you know, give me maybe a 0.5, you know, but I don't need the <laughs> 0.123 and the 0.125 dot, dot, dot. But again, that's just, that's just griping. Yeah. They exploded, they exploded the subdivisions into their own standalone statutes. So, the, I mean, that's what, I mean, again, just kind of nerding out on that. I mean, that's what kind of makes this a little bit more challenging because concepts that were previously uh, clustered under, under one concept have now had their own kind of standalone area of the law. We'll just get used to it. So, so that leads to my next question, and, but I'm going to make it a two-parter. Um, feel free, either of you who would like to respond to this, but does this reorganization substantively change the law under the PRA itself. And as a secondary question, to the point you just raised, Manuel, that subdivisions previously housed within a singular statute have now been divided out into their own provisions, which I would say might have historically allowed for us to read and interpret those given subdivisions in context with what they were located with, um, whether or not if there was an intention to, sub to substantively change the law, does these subdivisions now standing on their own lead to ambiguity and arguments that, that might have been more clear had they been housed together with like or related subdivisions? Whoever wants it. Sure. So I can, I can jump in on that. Um, with respect to whether the reorganization substantively changes the law, I think looking at the bill proposed by the legislature which resulted in this reorganization, on its face, the answer is no. The legislature's intent was not to substantively change the law itself. In fact, the preamble specifically states that. However, as we've kind of noted, our review of this organization, or reorganization rather, um, we've noted that there are minor changes to various statutes, minor changes in the language, and then as Manuel noted, changes in how these concepts in the CPRA are housed, some of them now being housed within their own statute versus within a subdivision. And it's hard to tell just because they're so new 
what exactly uh, that may result in in terms of potential issues in the future. But it's definitely something we're going to have to keep our eye on in terms of how these things play out um, as we get more cases, as we get different interpretations of these, you know, for all intents and purposes, new statutes, so to speak. Um, so we're going to have to see on that one, Sloan. You know, I'm just curious, Did has the, has the effort been made, not necessarily internally by us, but it's often the case that even, well, third parties or sometimes uh, parts of the legislature create a cross-reference chart that show what the pre-existing codification was versus where things are now. Are we aware of whether or not that exists yet? Yeah, I mean, people people are doing that. I mean, we're doing that internally to figure out kind of consistently from a jurisprudence standpoint, what, where the law stood. I mean, think about it this way. The law was a, a unified body in the old days, and then you carve it up and then send it in different directions. And so moving forward, either attorneys or courts that are analyzing the law, I don't want to say are going to get a, a new perspective, but it feels like they're going to get a new perspective of reading some statute that was previously connected to other provisions historically and and somewhat read them out of context and if the intent as elise said if the intent of the legislature was to to not change the law it's going to be challenging to to argue to future courts what that what the law was in 2022 Right, it's easy because now it's 2023. We're barely in, you know, the early part of 2023. As you move forward and and further away from 2022, right, people will look at the existing statutes and say, well, those seem to be standing alone, and we'll and we're, for those of us that that are keeping track of it, we'll have to remind courts and or opponents that the law is connected to other provisions historically and if the intent was to be the same that it's going to have to be read the same uh, a couple of side questions coming off of that to the extent they've taken provisions which used to have four parts to them and broken those out into four new statutes have they kept them sequentially in order or has there been a re rejuggling of where those those previously related subdivisions are now located in the broader statutory scheme. It's a mess. Okay. Well, it, that's, it is, uh, that's it is so comforting. It's so comforting, man. There's no rhyme or reason in, in terms. In fact, I mean, like in the old days, we had, you know, something like government code section 6254 subdivision A through Z or something like that. All of those exemptions that were under that statute were kind of next to each other. Now they've just been carved up and sent to a different area of the law. And really? so instead of having subdivisions, you have 0 .000, .705. There's no subdivision C, subdivision F. They're not even sequentially held. So as Daniel's saying, for example, 0.700, it's not now that they're 0 .700, 0 .701, 702. They're all over the place. So it is, as Manuel said, a little bit of a mess even the predicate number is also different. So where we were living with 6250, 6254, 6255, it is now 7920, 7922, 7927. And all of those are, are an entire section on themselves. 
And when you have the, the decimal point with three numbers after it, I mean, that could be, that's a lot. Yeah. What about the, uh, the provisions that were housed at the near conclusion of the former PRA statutory scheme that had kind of the long laundry list of examples of particular types of records that might be exempt due to their the balancing and privacy aspect? Are those still, are those big catch-all provisions still there or did they get moved around and, or, or stricken? So the provisions still exist in, in mostly the form that they existed before. They just literally were moved. I don't know how to describe it. I've already, I previously described it as taking a body, chopping it up, and then sending it in different places. It's the same as taking a Lego, right? You had something that was a, a solid piece, and then you broke it up into smaller pieces and moved it 10 feet over here, 10 feet over there. It's, you'll, you'll find it somewhere in the law. You'll just have to dig it's yeah. really not, it's not user friendly like it was in the past. So what I'm describing here is like in the past, you had most of those exemptions under 6254 and now they're in their own separate address. And we anticipate so, this could create confusion because it almost, it, to someone who doesn't spend a lot of time with these statutes, it could appear that some of those were stricken because they, they're not housed in the same order that they were previously. And so we anticipate that there may be some arguments as to whether certain exemptions still exist. And it's gonna be incumbent upon us to have those citations ready and make sure that you know people are aware that they do still exist, they're just in a really funky place now. Okay, so I'm hearing no intent per se by the legislature to change the law, but we'll wait and see as to what arguments are made because of this reorg. How does this impact the way public agencies actually respond to PRA requests at this PRA request at this point? So at this point, Sloan, we're taking the legislature at their word. We've talked a little bit about how their intent was not to change anything. And so what flows from that naturally is the idea that responses do not have to change, right? If we're if we're as the legislature intended, working with the same law as we previously had, there shouldn't be any substantive changes to the way that public agencies are responding to these requests. That being said, as we also noted, we anticipate there could be some issues that come up. And so we're going to have to revisit those as those issues come up, as the case law comes out with respect to these new statutes. But for now, I think the complicating factor, as we've been talking about, is that the CPRA does not neatly correlate the previous statutes in the new reorganization. So any prior citations, including citations used in, for example, template letters, to members of the public seeking public records uh, are gonna have to be carefully reviewed and updated to those new statutory references that we've been talking about. And Sloan, I, I, I gotta chime in here because I think this is, this the point that Elise is making is extremely important. I love the law, I love being an attorney, but I think that this is one area of the law where there seems to be a, a slight disconnect between how the law is written, how the courts are interpreting it, and frankly, how those of us on the ground have to live with it. I don't think that there's a lot of sympathy for those of us that have to live with this on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's what I'm saying is going to be, I think what Elise's point is, what's gonna be complicated because we get hundreds, if not thousands of these. And responding to 
Public Records Act requests in a timely manner with the transparency that is envisioned by the law is now going to be that much more difficult because now public agencies have to go combing through where where are these exemptions? What, how am I responding? And if they're not aware of of that, there that the intent was to keep this largely, you know, the same in terms of its meaning. People can get confused based on some of the verbiage that's getting yeah. changed. It almost seems like it's a trap for to the extent we have to identify or a public agency needs to identify when responding to request those exemptions which apply to documents which are not going to be disclosed and the potential waiver if you do not timely and accurately assert those exemptions, the potential waiver. I think there's a whole bunch of facts that can play into a later a subsequent clarification as to what exemptions apply. But if you don't know where to find them, especially for those those new folks, you know, at the public agency level, at the district office, at the at city hall, who are trying to respond based on older template models, and they don't know where those exemptions are housed anymore, how to correctly state state them, and and potentially with reference to the applicable code section, feels like a little bit of a trap. If you start, if you take everything that was in the puzzle and mix it up uh, in the box and throw it out on the floor. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's that's unfortunately, you know, for those clients that are or those public agencies that are managing this on their own, this isn't what they're in business for, right? While this is a a fundamental right, you know, the public has a fundamental right to access this information. This isn't the primary purpose for the existence of our of our government, right? This is something that they're doing because they are required to do, and often, you know, these kinds of requests are are being made with staff being under-resourced, I think, in terms of trying to keep the pace with with the demand for information. Well, with that being said, Manuel, uh, this has been very helpful to understand uh, this new change with the PRA and the kind of challenge or challenges that we foresee coming coming in the future as we implement this Reportedly unchanged set of laws, but certainly reorganized set of laws. What about, um, are we seeing new trends in the case law or PRA requests and practices that would be worth uh, noting for our listeners as we as we track those coming in for our public agency clients? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of big trends. And, and we've said them before, and they're only kind of becoming more um, prominent, which is we're seeing much more complex uh, Public Records Act requests being made. We, we are seeing the weaponization of these Public Records Act requests um, as a precursor to litigation. Uh, we are seeing much more nuanced battles at the court level about what qualifies as a public record. Uh, a case that was just published not too long ago uh, involving the UC Regents and one of its professors uh, touched on the concept of whether or not uh, a professor in her own private capacity who was uh, issuing articles to entities outside of the UC system, whether or not those communications qualified as public records. Long story short, the Court of Appeal citing to the San Jose uh, case out of the Supreme Court, uh, applying the factors that the Supreme Court laid out uh, for what qualifies as a public record, 
determined, yes, that, that in that particular instance, on those particular facts, that the professor's private communications to outside entities about articles in her area of expertise qualified as public records because it was inherent to her job as a professor to try to be published. And I think in this case, you know, there was a lot of energy around those articles because there was allegations of plagiarism, which, you know, is a very serious allegation in the world of, of academics. But I mean, the reason I bring that up is because it's, we are now, we've been moving away from the simple requests and really heading into this direction of, you know, getting deep into the weeds of this litigation, deep into the weeds of what is of public records, deep into the weeds of what needs to be turned over. And at the, I'm, I'm sorry to say, public agencies are caught in the middle. They're caught in the middle because you either are going to catch liability from the requesting party, or you're going to catch liability um, from the real party in interest. In this case, you know, the, that I'm speaking of, uh, the UC Regents case, uh, the real party in interest is the professor, right? So you have kind of this triangular, uh, at minimum, a triangular uh, battlefield in court where you have the public agency, the employee, the public employee, and the requesting party. Well, Manuel Lise, way to shower our listeners with, with spring tulips and... Uh... You guys are really bears of, of uh, positive news. No, I, that, that's in part tongue-in-cheek. The challenges under the PRA from that litigation angle, both both one person saying don't disclose it, another requester saying to disclose it, it is not getting easier for public agencies in that context. And it sounds like based on the reorganization, um, there's going to be plenty of, of need for further clarification, further cases, and support from from legal counsel on how to walk through this this new maze of the reorganized PR, PRA. You two are awesome. I appreciate you both making the time um, to be here with uh, our listeners today. And for our listeners, um, thank you for tuning in to another Lozano Smith podcast. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast. To find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today, also make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Mr. Martinez, Mrs. Nichols, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sloan. It's been fun. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.